0: Welcome to another edition, I guess, of uh, Path to Becoming a CFO. I am thrilled to have uh, Kate Bucher with us today. And Kate has had a very interesting uh, career. She uh, spent a long time in investment banking at places like Blackstone Group, UBS, Credit Suisse, and uh, then along the way made a shift to uh, operating roles and then spent about uh, 11 years initially at Akamai in a variety of operating roles, finally ending as uh, The SVP of Business Finance and Operations, and uh, for a little more than two years now, she's been the CFO at uh, HubSpot, right? And so I'm sure all of you have heard of HubSpot. For those who haven't, uh, as of earlier today, uh, they were uh, they're a public company, and as of earlier today, they were about uh, valued market cap is about a little less than 13 billion dollars or something like that. So uh, uh, you know, so she has a really big, responsible job. as the CFO Hotspot, and uh, Kate, thank you so much for joining us uh, thank and, you for and having I'm me. really looking forward to the conversation now.
1: Sounds awesome. good. Thank you so
0: so let's let jump uh, uh, right in and and I want to start with that choice you made right and just speaking about the career path that you've had, uh, you know you spent the first half of your career in investment banking right and uh, you know, how did that experience really prepare you for uh, the ultimate CFO role uh, that you now have? And also, why did you choose to make that shift at all? Uh,
1: sure. So, maybe we'll take it in pieces a little bit. Uh, I came out of business school and joined an investment banking firm called DLJ. And, you know, I, I'm unfortunately old at this moment. And so, at that point in time, you know, investment banking and consulting were two really big career paths, um, very popular career paths coming out of business school. And investment banking was clearly much more financially focused. Um, I joined because frankly, investment banking is an awesome training ground for people early in their career. And the reason for that is that you your life revolves around the deal right whether it's a financing transaction or a merger transaction um, you go from deal to deal to deal and the life cycle of a deal is relatively short so you are learning uh something new frankly all the time right you're learning a new company a new business you're working with a new team and understanding of new styles and like teaching yourself how to get up to speed on challenges very quickly Um, and so i spent 10 uh or so years in investment banking and really you know it was a it was very much a great training ground Um, but at some point the things that make you successful in investment banking change so You go from um, uh, a role where success means you are highly analytical, you know how to, you're organized, you know how to manage a deal process, for example, to a role where it's very much a sales role. Um, Relationship management and doing that well is what makes success in sort of the senior ranks of investment banking. And at some point, sort of that point at which, you know, that those criteria were changing for my success, I kind of took a pause and looked internally and said, is this the path that I wanna be on? And what, you know, in my heart, I'm frankly just not a salesperson. And so I decided to go do something different and in my case I decided to go work uh, for a company and lucky for me it was Akamai uh, and was able to spend 11 years um, at Akamai. Now I would I would note it there's some there's an irony to the story which I think I shared with you earlier which is you know, as you get more senior in your career, it sort of doesn't matter uh, whether you're in investment banking or you're working for a company, more and more of your job becomes sales. Like for me as the CFO, I certainly have a sales role, which is, you know, outward facing for to investors. Um, but I also have a lot of sales in my daily life, um, internally, uh, trying to drive, you know, alignment and advocate for things that I think are important. So. Uh, I'm happy I made the decision, uh, but probably the underlying reason was less valid than I thought it was going to be.
0: Got it. It sails all the way down, right? And, and yeah. so speaking of uh, you know, your background, you actually studied math in undergrad, if I'm not mistaken. You've know, you always been quantitative. Yeah. So you're always in quantitative, you know, you went into investment banking, but you never really had that strong accounting background. Right. And a lot of CFOs, they come from investment banking background. Some come from, you know, the big four audit uh, accounting background. Uh, how did you kind of uh, fill those gaps in your own uh, uh, skills when it came to the accounting side, because you came from the investment banking side, right? And yeah. was that a tough journey for you? And how did you uh, uh, you know, make that work?
1: It's an interesting question because, you know, the historical path to CFO has often come through accounting as you are, um, as you alluded to. Um, for me, you know, I, I spent at Akamai 11 years really building this business finance function. And That was the sort of financial function that partnered with decision makers in the business and tried to help them make sort of smarter economic data-based choices. Um, In that role, there is a lot of partnership with accounting. And so number one, I think everyone needs a baseline understanding of accounting. You are never going to get away not having that. but I think that you don't have to be the expert. And through that you know, time in business finance, we worked a lot with the accounting team as things were changing, new standards were happening to try to understand what impact that had on the business, to educate the business partner so that they could make smarter decisions. And you learn a lot more than you think you would through that process. And so I, I don't feel at a um, disadvantage not having spent time directly on the accounting side. That's why I have a great controller, uh, and you know I think it's really important, you know, as a leader to have really strong uh, team underneath you that's very expert at their own areas. And you know I rely on Brian a lot uh, in the specific technical kind of accounting issues.
0: Got it. Got it. And, and staying on this interesting choice that you made to shift from investment banking to a more operating role, I, as I was looking at, at your uh, uh, you know, the titles that you had and things like that, it almost seemed like from the Blackstone Group as a managing director, when you joined Akamai, it seemed like it was a reduced scope of a role. And, and it seemed like an interesting choice. Like, how did you think about that? Was it a reduced scope? And what was kind of the uh, thought process in, in making that choice?
1: Yeah, I, I would not get caught up in titles. Everyone, I mean, Wall Street's famous for making up lots of different titles at lots of different places. So I wouldn't read too much into that. Um, but I think in some sense, you are actually right The substance, in substance. When I moved over to Akamai, I would say at best it was a lateral move. I think that there was, frankly, a bit of a step, you know, sort of sidestep backwards uh, in taking the role that I did, and I, I'm actually really happy that I did it that way. And I'll tell you why. Um, first of all, life at a—it was the first time I was ever going to work at a company. Right. And there's a lot that is different working at a company. Uh, than working as an agent, you know, which is effectively what investment banking is. And having the space where you felt very comfortable with the subject matter expertise that you brought to the table, um, while you were learning how to get things done, um, actually was a good, made for, you know, a much smoother transition uh, than otherwise. The other thing that I would say is, I was really picking a company more than picking a job and I think you know Akamai was an awesome place to work and the reason that I think it was an awesome place to work is that it was full of smart people who were always open to spending time with you to make sure you understood like their area of expertise and could then sort of apply it to your area of expertise and it was a place where, like, if you made a difference and were successful at one job, something new would open up to you. And I think that I, in my 11 years, I probably had nine or 10 different jobs when I was at Akamai. And all of them had some amount of learning to them um, that really helped me uh, when and it was time for me to you know, become, a more senior leader across finance and operations, and then ultimately the CFO at HubSpot.
0: Got it. And so ultimately, you know, the, the sometimes you would recommend that the one step back to take three steps forward, at least in your case, it, it seems to have worked out great, right?
1: I Frankly, I have this conversation all the time, especially with um, people who are relatively early on in their career who have a view that, sort of the next promotion or the next title is the thing that's going to make a difference. And the r- truth is they'll get ahead faster in the early innings, right? But what happens is that as you become more senior, having perspective that, and, and an understanding of different parts of the business and how the your peers are going to be thinking through things and making choices really helps you become a better partner to them and a better overall leader at the company and so i'll, I'll just i'll give you a couple of examples um i ran sales operations uh for a period of time at Akamai, and that was i mean it was a, a bit of a fish out of water for me um but there are many times now when I partner with our chief customer officer around issues uh, for the go to, on the go-to-market side where having had that experience in sales operations makes me much more effective as a partner to her and how she's making those decisions. And so I think, you know, seeing different styles, learning different parts of the business, understanding how those different parts of the business really think and make decisions is a great um, part of building a career.
0: Got it. And so speak, uh, speaking about the nine or 10 different roles that you had at Akamai, uh, and as you went up that ladder in the operating roles, right? So what in your experience uh, sets apart the people who get to the VP finance level, but uh, from those who ultimately take that step further and, and get the meaningful CFO uh, uh, job and responsibility, right? So what was, yep. what's been kind of your experience about uh, the patterns you've seen in people who are able to make that leap, right?
1: Yeah. I think there's probably a couple things that I would point out. Um, the first is, well, I would just say there are some experiences that are must-have experiences from my perspective for, uh, any CFO and to me like first and, and like first second and third is running corporate fpNA for some period of time and it is frankly it is a really hard job um, but I think it's really important to do that if you want to become a CFO so I'll, I'll tell you a story so I, I was working at Akamai and there was a my business partner at the time was uh, a guy who ran all of the the ne- deployed network akamai has servers that you know were all over the world and we were talking i don't know why we got on this topic of like who has the worst job at akamai and i said to him rosemary comenda who was running fpna has the worst job at akamai and Literally the next day, the CFO at the time, who was my boss, Jim Benson called me into his office and said, Rosemary would like to go part-time and we want you to have, we want you to take (laughs) a job. And so I was like, be careful what you ask for. But the reality is that was probably the single best experience in training me for the role of CFO. Um, Because one, you have to be responsible for the cadence of the business. And you have to drive a, like the whole business alignment in that sort of planning process, which is a really big and critical task. The second thing is that it just, it, you're the, the analyst who's supporting the CFO, who's supporting preparation for the board, who's supporting preparation for earnings for investors. And it gives you a view of the business that is really different from that of any sort of business partner because it gives you a view of what are the critical things that jim the ceo cares about the cfo cares about that investors are asking for and it's it is just a different frame of reference so i would say 100% everyone needs that experience before they will be a good successful cfo that said i think there's lots of different paths that you can take to get ultimately to the cfo job and i think that as i look at people who have made the leap and who are successful i mean there's certainly some baseline skills like financial acumen like you know um, organization but it's to me it's are they intellectually curious are you always trying to learn something new Um, those people i have seen tend to succeed more than others and can you be persuasive right can you gather alignment influence your peers influence up influence down um, set a vision build a team like those are the characteristics that are gonna set apart a good leader.
0: Got it. It's fascinating to me how curiosity is such a common trait that gets recommended by pretty much every CFO because it looks like-
1: It's probably because we're all curious, j- right?
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and I think like the breadth of the job is such that you have yes. to know a lot uh, you know maybe go deep in one place but still be very curious about a lot of different things and and still be smart enough to partner with people across the organization and all of that right and i think that's yeah, true i also
1: think that que- like asking questions is such a great tool that i think the polite way to describe people who ask questions over and over and over is curious and so maybe that's why we're describing ourselves that way but I'm never afraid to ask a dumb question. You know, we talked about the fact that I don't have an accounting background. I don't have a tax background. But when we go through the tax returns or if there's a new accounting standard that's coming out, I am not afraid to ask questions until I feel like I thoroughly understand it or understand it as much as I need to.
0: Got it. That's great. So now, you know, I don't know if if this is the first CFO role or maybe it is at HubSpot. In but you had like a big responsible job at Akamai too before you moved uh, on from there. But if you think about, uh, uh, you know first-time CFOs, I'm not sure if you would consider yourself one, but is it a pattern? kind yes. of
1: Yes, I 100% consider myself a first-time CFO, so yes. You do,
0: okay. Yes. So then I'm sure you've been having an interesting experience in terms of doing the job for the first time, and is that a you know, And if you think back to maybe some of the things you could have uh, avoided in terms of mistakes and, and uh, lessons learned, is that a pattern, you think, uh, as you look back over the last eight, two, two and a half years of you doing this job? Uh, you know, what's the wisdom there in terms of, uh, uh, you know, the patterns, patterns of mistakes you might have uh, made that you might avoid uh, uh, if you did the job again?
1: Yeah. It's an interesting question because I, I, as a first-time CFO, I was both trying to, I was trying to learn the job and I was trying to learn the HubSpot, right, the company, how decisions were made, I was trying to learn the business. And those were two things that are really hard to do at the same time. And I think as a result, I, my, I, I think I would describe it as I was probably too conservative. Um, but maybe another way to describe it is I kind of applied the decision matrix or or sort of mechanics that i would have used at akamai at hubspot and they are very different businesses right and so when i think about hubspot what we are attack you know we're growing at mid 30 percent you know and we are trying to drive continued growth like that is what matters and if I am forecasting something in a way that's too conservative when we're making decisions that are um, not maximizing our investments, like that's that's not the right outcome for the company. And it's a very different sort of framework for decision-making than what we had at Akamai, which was a bit more mature of a business. And so I think there's, um, to me, it was not adapting fast enough to what was important at HubSpot in terms of driving the business. Um, And in in this case, it translated into probably being too conservative uh, from the start um, but it, it's certainly a lesson learned and something that we are trying to, uh, act differently about now.
0: Got it. And before I move on from this whole kind of uh, area of, uh, career and, and, uh, you know, choices and things like that, I want to ask you one more question about, uh, you know, the fact that as a woman CFO, you know, the data suggests you're in the minority. If you look at, you know, uh, public companies, you're definitely in the minority and, uh, you know, what has your experience been in your journey getting to uh, where you are and and uh, any lessons learned about things that you did right or maybe things that you would you know uh, say to the women in the in the audience about things that they might have to do uh, differently to get to where you are
1: yeah I-, I will be honest, I probably had a bit of an easier journey than many people, and really the root um, of that is the choice that I made very much up front coming out of business school. I think the, if you read a lot of the recent studies, it's that those first couple of job, jobs out of school that are making a difference in terms of the overall long-term success for women. And when I joined DLJ, I did it purposefully. Um, one, it was a it was a bank that was known to be more based on, you know, promotion and things were based much more on merit than some of the other places on Wall Street. But two, there was this network of women that I had met through my summer internship that were really good um, and were really supportive of one another. And so I joined, I had a great um, set of peers who were joining at the same time, who were smart women graduating from business school at the same time. And we had a network of really good, strong women that we worked uh, for over that period of sort of that first three or four years of our career. And they really helped to train us. Um, they were not, it was not an easy road. Like they were tough, um, which is what made it really good and i think that what that did for me is reinforce the value of that network um, both at the mentor like more senior levels but also at your peer level and that's something that's stayed with me um, throughout my career where Uh, I always have someone who is around my level, who um, has a similar job, who I think very highly of that I can bounce ideas off of. And I always felt like if I was thinking about something one way and she was thinking about something the same way, that it actually gave me more confidence in my decision-making and, and uh, the ability to sort of execute forward. The place where, ironically, I've had it sort of stopped was when I became the CFO. And um, I looked around and there was no one internally at the company uh, that I felt that way about. Uh, and over time, actually over the last couple of years, I've started to create a network of both men and women, frankly, um, who are CFOs across technology, um, generally defined, and, and they've been become a really good resource for the questions that you really have no one to ask internally. And there's a woman, frankly, that actually I worked with at Akamai, her name is Sandy Smith, she's a CFO at Segment, and she and I have um, continued to stay in touch and sort of use each other as sounding boards, Uh, and have started to try to widen that network a bit um, in the technology community in and around San Francisco. Um, So it's, uh, use your peers and and don't forget them.
0: Got it. And then staying on that topic of mentorship, uh, it looks like you've had, uh, uh, you know, your share of them through, through the course of your career, but was that a, were you deliberate about it? Or did you maybe get lucky in that you had good managers and people who, helped you along the way or uh, did you plan it? And then did you always work towards this goal of being a CFO and seek out mentors along the way? And how did you approach mentorship?
1: Yeah, I wish I would tell you that everything was planned, but the truth is I got very, um, it was very lucky for me. So um, I would say there's probably three people who've had a lot of influence on my career. Um, The first one is a woman named Jill Greenthal. I worked for Jill at DLJ uh, coming out of business school. She was a very senior leader in the bank at that time. And I you know, was you know, the three or four, third or fourth uh, young kid who was working on her team. Uh, but Jill, I worked for Jill for 10 years. So I worked for her at DLJ and First Boston. Um, I followed her to Blackstone. Um, and she was the one who introduced me to uh, the leadership team at Akamai. Uh, and ultimately led to me getting hired there. So um, Jill and I stay in touch. We get together like once a quarter. And even though, you know, my career has gone in a very different direction than hers, she's got this like very mature, um, sound, calming advice that she gives to me on a relative basis. So I'll, I'll give you one example. You know, I, we talked about you know, as a first time CFO, as a first time CFO learning, going into a new company and trying to learn all of it, it can be very overwhelming. And, you know, I was like, sort of just kind of getting on that path, uh, uh, that learning path. And I was starting to feel a little bit like, oh, oh my gosh, is this gonna, am I gonna survive? And I had happened to have dinner with her that night. And she was like, just, you just need to do one thing at a time, like take the most important thing and just sort of knock it out and then go to the next thing and then go to the next thing. And it sounds so simple, but the reality is that when you do that, it allows you to sort of concentrate on the one thing and finish stuff and start to tick things off your list and really make some progress. So uh, it turned out to be a great piece of advice. So Jill has been a huge influence uh, Jim Benson, who I worked for, he was the CFO at, uh, at Akamai, has been a great um, mentor to me. Frankly, he was just a great manager and cared a lot about your uh, development and, and your career and his team. And so uh, that was also falls in the category of lucky. And then the third um, person that I would highlight is J.D. Sherman, who was the CFO at Akamai before Jim Benson. He was the one who actually hired me into the company. And J.D. left and went on to become the chief operating officer and president at HubSpot, which is how I actually was introduced to the the CFO opportunity over there. So uh, he clearly had uh, an impact on my overall career.
0: Got it. And so now, flipping the coin a bit, I'm, I'm assuming that you know, you've you done this long enough that you are now in the position of mentoring uh, people and, and people who are coming up uh, behind you. And so what do you see in terms of characteristics in, in the people that you are mentoring who go on to grow quickly and, and uh, kind of, you know, go up the career ladder and maybe walk their way up to the CFO yeah. role and uh, do you see some patterns and, and characteristics that uh, you think uh, are an indicator of future success?
1: Yeah, I would say there's a, um, I mean, we talked about curiosity and I can't understate, you know, you have to be really interested and motivated and wanting to learn. Um, that, is, that is definitely one. Um, two, and I, I say this um, without irony, like, People just bring, people who bring common sense, right? I think there's, as you get more senior, uh, part of your job is calming, right? And being able to step back and look at a situation with like ultimate objectivity and and bring some common sense to to bear and, and make decisions that just like make foundational um you know, hold foundational reason. So I think those are are two. And then it's, you know, people who can build a good build and inspire a good team around them. Right. I one of the things that I actually am most proud of at my as my transition over to HubSpot is that, you know, I didn't not I didn't replace any of the leaders underneath me. They were all excellent. And they and they um we have all built relationships with now with each other uh and i think that was just a really important part of the any success that i've had at hubspot to date is that group of people and being able to attract and retain really sharp talent makes you you know look good right give them opportunities to shine and you will shine with them
0: Got it. and speaking of you know, management and leadership, do you feel like that came naturally to you? And then what was your, for example, do you, where do you fall on that spectrum of, hey, hey, leadership, you're either born with it, or no, no, it's actually something you can learn and get better at, even if you don't feel like, you know, those are qualities you have, uh, uh, you know, uh, that, that will yeah. allow you to go to the job someday. Where do you fall on that spectrum and what was your own experience?
1: I would say, Management came easy, like came natural to me. Teaching, like, get, you know, building a small team and executing and being successful, like, that was sort of a natural thing for me. But at a point, some point in time, you are. You know, you're know, you managing people who are managing other people and your team is big enough that you can't have an individual contribution or an individual impact on everyone's career. That is to me where that shift from like manager to leader uh, becomes. And I think there's much more to be learned there. Um, I think the foundational um, motivators of being a good manager are the ones that will oftentimes make you a good leader. But there's also, there's a lot of, I would say a lot more structure to being a good leader than there is to being a good manager. And there's a lot more deliberate communication, um, that has to happen. And I, I think that is something that is, that can be learned. Got I think it. foundation and- you have to care. <laughs> right? And then, you know, you can, you can learn a lot over time from there.
0: Got it. And again, uh, just a quick follow-up question on that. Was this mostly about watching other leaders and, and learning that way? Or were you a student where you sought out books and were there influential books that, 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 you know, you, you read that made a difference for you in your career? And I'd love to learn more about that.
1: Yeah, I learned much more from watching and doing than I do from reading about it um I know that there are people who study you know every book actually Brian Halligan who's the CEO CEO at HubSpot is an avid reader and I think that he like that's that's what brings out his curiosity and his you know desire to learn and he it, it is awesome because it influences the whole organization to go in that direction. Um, but I do much less of the reading and much more of the absorbing.
0: Got it, great. So I'm going to move on to a couple of other topics. Before I do that, I'm going to remind everybody that if you have questions for Kate, uh, you know, I'm going to be done with mine soon. There's a Q&A button at the bottom of your Zoom window. so please uh, click on that and, and, and uh, feel free to ask. And so now, now, Kate, just changing directions a bit to talk about the role of finance uh, and accounting teams in companies, right? Yes. And uh, maybe I should start at a very high level and ask, uh, yeah. H- how do you build trust and then how do you kind of make sure that you have good relationships with other parts of the organization? You were talking about how you have to work with your chief customer officer on sales operations one day, and then maybe a completely different thing with another part of the organization. And the CFO role is one where you have to influence a lot of different parts of the company. Uh, and and how, how what have your lessons been around building those relationships, building trust with uh, uh, the other executives that you work with.
1: Yeah. I mean, to me, it's like transparency is critical. Um, being open and honest about sort of the data, the process the, your logic and, and reasons why you're thinking and, uh, ultimately just desi- behind the ultimate decision and getting people sort of aligned around it is, is super critical um making decisions in a black box is not um you know i think finance yeah yeah that's yeah that's what i would say i just it's bec- being unemotional getting alignment on the desired result, and then sort of being transparent in your logic and process and being data oriented are the in my mind the sort of keys here
0: got it and also in, in, in terms of the role of finance and how finance as a function is perceived within the company. I think CFOs and finance leaders have a kind of big uh, influence on that, right? And how do you avoid, or has that ever been an issue for you in your career where finance was seen as a little bit of a back office function and, and uh, you know, didn't really have a seat at the table. And did you ever have to kind of work against that perception to give finance kind of a seat at the table? And, and what has your experience been on, on that front?
1: Yeah, I think that the reputation of finance is always like the gatekeeper to the cash, right? And I, I think I try to work very hard uh, to avoid that becoming the reality, right? Um, and I think finding a way to say yes, as often as humanly possible is a really important thing for you to be a successful CFO and a successful partner. And a lot of times, and the initial request is like gonna be a no. Uh, and it's about how do you translate the no into a different yes, right? Um, how do you figure out what you know the, the real core of the ask is and is there another way to get there? Uh, and trying to work together to figure out how to to you know, execute on um, the desired goal as opposed to the specific question that comes to you. To me, is is really really important.
0: Got it. And uh, you know, now again, shifting uh, focus a little bit more in terms of the role of finance. Uh, uh, you know, as kind of we move into say the next decade. Uh, you know, how do you think about the skills that a CFO needs, uh, you know, given how things have gone over the last eight, 20 years of your own yep. uh, career and, and uh, maybe I should start there. Let me set aside the future uh, aside for a bit. Let me start by asking you, has the job as you have seen it changed over the last say, 15, uh, 20 years and evolved? And if so, in, in, in what ways?
1: I mean, obviously not all during my tenure. Um, but I, I think that the role of the cfo and the role of finance has clearly shifted right and i think that historically everyone kind of waited for finance to tell them what the answer was right and then it would you would try to move from there so like you know where did revenue where did revenue come out what was your arr et cetera? like Now data is much, much more widely available. You have operations teams that probably live across the organization. Many of them are in finance. And so it's, your job isn't actually calculating what the number is anymore. The job is about figuring out like, what are the numbers that are really important? What are they saying about the business? Like, you know, how do you drive the organization to pay attention to the things that matter to you and how do you enable them to like make their own decisions that are going to be ones that result in heading in a direction that you want, right? And so it's it's wow. going to be, it's much more about defining the right metrics for success uh, and making sure that the organization all understands that and, and agrees with that and then figuring out how to allow them to make decisions in their own business that that are aligned uh, against those ultimate goals.
0: Got it. And in terms of say the future, right? If, if we can look at maybe the near term and, and maybe the next ten years, as you think about your own job at HubSpot over the next two, three, four years, what do you think? Uh, what's top of mind for you? Other other than the day to day, right? Like there's the day to day, but do do you foresee any big changes in how finance, the operational efficiency of your finance team might have to change uh, and, and uh, things like that. Is, is there anything like that on your radar? And, and that's in the near term. But what about the next 10 years? Do you see some, you know, any big changes happening? We all hear about AI and how a huge amount of uh, yeah. uh, accounting work can get automated away and uh, all that kind of stuff, right? And what's your yeah. take on that? And how are you thinking about, say, maybe the near term and, and the next uh, uh, 10 years?
1: You know, I think it's very much focused on how do you make the operational processes scale with a business. So I am,
0: we have,
1: you know, almost 80,000 customers and, you know, we have every uh, intention of continuing to grow and supporting 80,000 customers is going to be different than supporting 200,000 customers and making sure that we are making investments now that create systems and processes and that will actually allow us to support that kind of scale in terms of the number of customers the amount of revenue the number of bills that we're sending out um that's increasingly the job of the cfo right there's an operational role that is not just like can i automate my cash applications it's can i can I make the end customer experience as friction-free as possible and that the underlying support for our customers is going to be much, much easier than it is today. And that is something that we're talking a lot about internally, and it's something that I am advocating for a lot internally.
0: Got it. Fantastic. So I'm, I'm going to make sure that we have enough time for questions from uh, the audience. But before I jump into that, I know we're trying something a little new today. Laura, did you want to run, take 30 seconds to ask a quick question of the audience?
1: Yeah. Um, so just launched a poll. Um, we're Airbase. If you'd uh, like to learn more about us, just let us know. We'll follow up afterwards. That's all. <laughs> Very quick. Thank you.
0: That's it? All right. Mm-hmm. So uh, you know, maybe you want to give people five more seconds and then we can jump into the questions. Yep,
1: sounds good.
0: Great, all right. So let's, let's maybe uh, jump in and, uh, and, and ask the questions. Now I have uh, one which is mostly about, uh, you know, Kate, you talked about how, uh, you know, you uh, were conservative right uh, and and that there's a question about I think warren is asking about how you estimate projections for growth especially over the uh, say a 2 to 5 year time frame uh, and of course i think he, he also has a comment about how uh, you know the growth rate at hubspot has uh, shown has been uh, great and how salesforce probably hasn't been too happy about that but uh, you know when you said you said conservative but Uh, but how do you think about growth over a two to five year time period and uh, uh, how do you kind of uh, uh, come up with uh, the numbers and of course I want to make sure and and this is kind of a high level thing of please don't say anything I know you're a public company and I want to make sure you don't uh, get in trouble and things like that but whatever you can share
1: yeah I think so it's when we're there's there's a difference between forecasting the results sort of in month and quarter and forecasting the results or or creating a long-term plan and i think the question is more to creating a long-term plan um i think there's a starting point which is a you could call it like a business as usual uh type of case where if you are operating in a similar way to how you're operating today. You know, how do you translate the trends in your business into what, you know, what that would mean from a forward projection of growth? And then we talk about, okay, well, what are the investments that we're making to sort of shift that in one direction or another? And we'll do a bunch of sensitivity analysis uh, to look at, um, you know, what if we invested more in, you know, this geography, or if we invested more in our self-serve motion, or, you know... We know the product roadmap looks like this, you know, what, maybe that would shift um, some of the assumptions, whether it's productivity of our reps or, you know, whether it's, you know, retention. I think just knowing what the levers in your business really are, because there's only going to be a few of them, and figuring out, um, you know, how to flex those levers to, reflect the actual business decisions that you're making got it and so I, yeah, I'm, trying it mean, things, and I'm trying to make, say things in a way that respect the you know the, the sort of public uh company stuff yeah yeah
0: no absolutely so uh you know that's that's uh, more important i don't want to be the reason why you get in trouble and uh <laughs> So that's, that's helpful, at least it was to me. And Warren, if, if, if you feel like you have a follow-up question, please go ahead and, and yeah. uh, you know, type it in. And uh, also another question was, I will interpret it this way uh, because I'm not sure if that is the exact intent, but my interpretation is uh, as, as finance uh, team members, you have to influence a lot of people across uh, the company, but they might not always be, forthcoming with all of the things that you might be trying to enforce in terms of discipline and control and, you know, and and you might get pushback uh, on that and things like that, right? And and, uh, how have you typically managed, uh, uh, you know, that when people don't want to do the thing that you're asking them to do, right?
1: Well, I think there's a to me there is a love there is a baseline level of acceptability right where if you are working with people who are not being honest with you, who are skirting process like to me you need to have a very frank upfront conversation um because it's just not acceptable and not a place that I would want to work if it continues to go on right um and so there's there is that. But I do think that there's, part of the answer frankly is with the question that you asked earlier around how do you build long-term relationships? And it's very much in my mind around um, consist- like consistency and decision-making and follow through, right? So I think finding a way to say yes to the ultimate goal, maybe not the way that the person wants to get there, and doing it within parameters that you're that are acceptable to you, and following through on that um, sort of time and time again, that will will get you where you need to go. But to me, I think there's I I, I don't love conflict, but I'm not going to shy away from it when I feel like it's gonna um, hurt the company to not address
0: something. Got it. That's great. So here's another one. Uh, I will paraphrase a bit, which is that, uh, you know, they've been put into a leadership position and a finance leadership position in a startup. uh, And, and they feel like, uh, you know, they got the responsibility maybe a little earlier than they were ready for it. And, and uh, uh, they don't really have the, support structure in terms of mentorship and all of that. And uh, they feel like they have the role and the responsibility, but not the power that comes with uh, uh, that role. Right. And so how would you, uh, you know, and and I don't know if if this is something that, you know, you had to uh, experience in in your career or uh, how did you go about finding that mentorship and bridging the gap between maybe the responsibility that was given to you versus you being ready for it and actually executing at that level, right?
1: Yeah, this is not an easy one. And I do think that uh, um, oh, exa- it's exactly connected with the previous question. So uh, to me, it's, it's oh, um, so uh, there's a question of, are you, do you feel like you're capable of doing this job or not, right? And uh, if it sounds like, the answer is you're capable of doing the job, but you are, don't feel comfortable that you have the level of support that you want around you. And I, here's what I would say, like in this case, and you know, I hope it's helpful because everything is, is very specific, but you know, you, as a finance person, data is your friend, right? And data is a really powerful tool that you can use to tell a story if you lay it out in a very straightforward way. And in my mind, having a, being able to present a compelling case in a very unemotional way based on data can really help drive people to make decisions that make more sense. And so, you know, I had, um, it's the, my sort of history of presentation has always been up until the CFO job is like, regardless of who you're presenting to, I was always presenting about the financial results and I was trying to tell a story and make a case. And if you can do that in a way that is easy to understand where the real tangible points kind of come through and you're doing it in a way that is not tied to um, like selfish interest or emotion, I think it can be very effective. And that's, I think, where I would probably guide you to start.
0: Got it. That's good. So. Uh... You know, has another question about the fact that you've always been on the East Coast, right? So the tech and, and you made the choice to go uh, be a part of the technology you know, industry and ecosystem and then and the West Coast, Silicon Valley, especially for tech companies. It's, it's obviously the uh, you know, more opportunities and, and uh, all of that out here. How did you think about that? And, and you're out in Boston now, uh, if I'm not mistaken. I and am, yep. What, is, yeah, what has guided your thinking about being in an ecosystem with enough opportunities as you're going up that uh, career ladder? And is that something uh, you've uh, uh, you know, spent any time thinking about?
1: Yeah, I mean, technology in Boston is, like I would say, alive and well, um, and maybe just concentrated in different pockets than technology in San Francisco. Um, so I think you have, there's a huge biotech community. Um, there is a lot of like technology that is more, um, networking oriented technology that is in Boston. So I think that there is a, you know, there's a lot of opportunity there. In my time at HubSpot, I think what has become very clear is there is not a lot of, say, consumer-oriented technology companies in Boston or front office-oriented technology companies in Boston. And so when we, as a company, think about where we can learn um, about best practices and trends and other things, it's oftentimes with uh, companies that are based out on the West Coast. And we, every year, do a field trip. And so we we did not do it this year, unfortunately, because of uh, the pandemic, but the leadership team, probably the top 25 people at the company, as part of a board meeting that we do out on the West Coast, will take a week and go visit companies in the Bay Area, generally, uh, to try to learn about a specific area where we think we need to get better. Um, and so in the past, we have done things around customer orientation. We did one around m and We did one around, um, I'm trying to think about some of the others, but I think that's a good way to um, stay connected across the coasts and to continue to, to learn from others, which, you know, as we've said during this whole hour, is really, really important.
0: Awesome. So I will end with uh, one question. Warren had that follow-up here. Yeah, he had asked about how you think about the planning uh, over the you know two to five-year time frame, and then you mentioned that you know there are uh, a few levels to focus on at the end of the day, right? And if you don't mind sharing this, uh, you know, if you had to think about a couple of KPIs other than cash flow that that you know you, you yep. want to keep an eye on, uh, what would you focus on? What are you focusing on?
1: Well, so one I will make a plug, there is a, um, a venture capitalist named David Scott who works at Matrix, who was one of the original investors in HubSpot. And he has po- he has posted like SaaS economics and all the KPIs. And it's like a great tool for people to the extent that they're looking for something that is, you know, more extensive. What I would say is, you know, HubSpot is a SaaS business. And we had, when I stepped into the role, we had about 195 pages in every monthly management deck. And we were looking at lots and lots and lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of different metrics. And one thing that I encourage the organization to do is really focus on, like, there's the the one thing that matters most to us, and for us, that one thing that matters most is we call it net new ARR, but is how much, on a monthly, bit, monthly, you know, quarterly, annual basis, are you adding to the install base of recurring revenue? And we look at that number and we look at the growth rate of that number, like with laser focus every you know time we talk about. Uh, financial results or uh, forecasting and that is our north star metric and having one north star metric that everyone cares about is a really big deal.
0: Got it. Look, I, I'm actually gonna ask you this question myself because I know that public markets ARR is not a gap metric, right? And and so from not- a public market uh, do they care about it or or How do you think about that? If internal reporting is a lot about net new revenue ARR and things like that, what is the public stance you take uh, uh, to that? Does does the market care equally about net new ARR, or do you speak about it differently?
1: So we talk about some of the underlying drivers of revenue, customers, and the ASRPC when we're talking as sort of these key KPIs that we talk about with investors. and I think those are, are helpful things to understand there's a, you know there is a there is a little bit of a difference between the things that we're like obsessed about internally and externally
0: Got it Kate this has been amazing. Thank you so much for taking the time. I enjoyed it. I'm sure uh, all of the listener listeners did too. I know you're incredibly busy as the uh, CFO for a you know, large successful public company. I really appreciate you taking the time.
1: Thank you very much for having me. Awesome. Have a great day. Thanks, you too. Bye.